Coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we have microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome three guests on Zoom. <laughs> I'm actually, now, you guys can't see them, but I can see them. And and that's, in other words, they're all over the place. They're literally all over the country. They're not in studio with me. And we have Reverend Dr. May Cannon, who is the president of Churches for Middle East Peace. Hello, May. Good to be here, Lisa. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. And then we also have Reverend Dr. Troy Jackson. He's a faith organizer with Ohio Faith in Action. Troy, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to be here, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. So May and Troy are both historians by training and were co-authors with me on the book Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Faith. And finally, another co-author on the Forgive Us book project is joining us, Reverend Dr. Soon Chan Ra, Associate Professor of Church Growth and Evangelism at North Park University. At the same time that Dr. Ra was writing his chapters in Forgive Us, he was also writing an incredible commentary on the Book of Lamentations. It was called Prophetic Lament, A Call to Justice in Troubled Times. Welcome, Soon Chan Ra. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Okay, so I've invited my co-authors of the book, Forgive Us, to join us on Freedom Road Podcast to help us to discern the moment that our world is in right now. This author team featured two historians and two theologians, and the work of the book was to discern seven sins of the church against the world. We'd love to hear what you think about lament, confession and repentance as well, particularly what the church needs to be lamenting, confessing and repenting right now. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to us at Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. Also, keep sharing, retweeting, reposting the podcast with your friends and networks and commenting on Facebook and Instagram. Our goal is to bring as many as possible into these critical conversations every month. And our listening community is growing. So keep inviting your friends to join us on Freedom Road. So, guys, a few times lately, I've found myself crying. I've actually literally just... In the middle of the day or while watching the news or something, without even knowing exactly what I'm crying about, I've literally found tears coming down my face and it's like this welling up from deep within. And it feels really clear that it's a deep weeping. There's something very, very deep happening. It feels like something has been lost. And, you know, it's a deep level of what I imagine that this is what lament is. We've been talking about it for a while, and I feel like I'm experiencing it in some ways for the first time in my life for something that didn't have, you know, didn't have direct impact on me. And it has to do with the state of the world. So I wanted to know, have you found yourselves experiencing that? Have you found yourselves lamenting in this season? Well, absolutely. Lament is a uh, an appropriate response 
to suffering and injustice in the world. And we see this in the Psalms and we see this in the Book of Lamentations. In fact, what we recognize is that the prophet Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Now, he is credited with the writing of the Book of Lamentations, and what we see is a person who is profoundly moved by what is happening in the world around us. So absolutely, for myself personally, uh, you know, when I hear about children being separated at the border, you know, having two children, just the, the pain and the, and the, and the uh, grief of what it would feel like as a parent to have children separated from me, the pain of evangelicals who seem to support this. And one of the first responses that were recorded of evangelicals responding to this crisis at the border was actually to go and want to adopt these kids. Uh, which is just heartbreaking. The, the assumption that their role is not to confront an injustice, but to further that injustice. So these are the things that I think, uh, in the same way, our hearts are, are broken with the heart, things that break the heart of God. There are so many things in the world right now that break the heart of God, and our hearts should be broken along with that. I have two incidents in the last several months. One of them was as recent as last night. I'm actually in Chicago at this moment. But last night I was in Oklahoma City and I was meeting with some church leaders and some congregation members from the United Methodist Indian Church in Norman, Oklahoma. And we were talking about the state of the Native American communities and the state of indigenous leaders in Oklahoma. And they were talking about cycles of poverty and development and the way that the current international politics that relate to Saudi Arabia and the oil industry are affecting the Native American communities because of these historic systemic sins against Native Americans. And I just found myself getting really choked up. Like, here we are, you know, in 2018, and some of the very issues that communities of color are experiencing, indigenous people are experiencing, are issues that have been critical issues for decades, and they're not getting better, they're getting worse. And then the other incident that comes to mind, you know, my work focuses significantly on the Middle East. And so in May, I was in Gaza. And many of you may be familiar about the U.S. Embassy being moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And at the same time, you had these incredible pictures of very posh, wealthily dressed people blessing this embassy in the name of God and in the name of Christ. You had young men and young people in Gaza being killed at the border and being shot by these bullets through their legs. And so I was in this hospital, Ali Hospital in Gaza, and I met these young men, many of whom had um, a single leg or even double amputations of their legs because of the types of bullets that were being used um, in response to their protests, which in large part were nonviolent. And I just, I was overcome. I was overcome. And so those are just kind of the two immediate incidents, you know, from Oklahoma and the United States all the way to Israel and the Palestinian territories that just caused me to lament and to grieve. Yeah, I, thanks, May. I think for me, a couple of things come to mind. One was the second mistrial for Officer Ray Tenzing in Cincinnati. Officer Tenzing is the officer that worked for the University of Cincinnati Police Department who went over a mile off campus to stop Sam DeBose for not having a front license plate on his vehicle. And in a scene that was caught on video, ended up shooting him in the head. Sam DeBose was unarmed. There were two trials in Cincinnati, and in the summer of 2017, the second trial 
uh, ended in a mistrial. Um, there were a few holdouts that refused to find Officer Tenzin guilty of this homicide. And it was a tough time, both trials for our community, a lot of weeping. I was just devastated. And I think it also was the welling up of all these incidents of police officers uh, around the country until what just happened in Chicago, a guilty plea was not to be found. And so there was a lot of lament uh, with my friends of color and also for white Christians who uh, are devastated by our horrible heritage of white supremacy and racism. And the second one was a couple of weeks ago when I reached out to Lisa uh, May and, and Sung John. Um, I think it was the night when Donald Trump mocked Dr. Blasey Ford from the stage. And I don't know why that was a break for me because the onslaught of insanity is daily, uh, but it continues the mocking of a body slam of a reporter last night, while at the same time, we have a reporter that was, from all accounts, dismembered in Turkey a few weeks ago, and there's been such a horrible response to that. I I think what's devastated me as much as anything is the complicity of the church with a mocking of people created in the image of God. It, it strikes me that the church of Jesus Christ, by and large, not everyone, but white evangelicalism by and large, has found ourselves in the position of the Roman soldiers mocking mm-hmm. Jesus. That's the side we're on right now. And I'm devastated by that. I'm kind of speechless. For me, the moment that where I broke, I mean, I really broke, was the moment when Susan Collins got up to the podium and as a woman defended a man when there was no real investigation into the allegations against him by three, possibly five other women, five women, you know, (laughs) people who uh, we have been onslaught. I mean, Freedom Road, we had one post that actually was an ad on Facebook and somehow the ad just got I'm not sure how we landed in the middle of a MAGA rally, but we really did. <laughs> and we had all kinds of crazy comments or just angry, rageful comments about the fact that we would even deign to believe a woman who had no evidence. But the hard part about that is because you know that they've been listening to one news station And they've been, they really do believe what they hear the president say. But the way that that trial, and it felt like it was, it's weird because it was not a trial. It really literally was just just a job interview, but it was placed on the level of a trial in terms of needing to be proven guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt in order to have any, any shadow or hint of guilt, um, or not even guilt, but question of the capacity to do the job. It was disturbing to see the response. But the moment that Susan Collins took that podium um, and she began to when I began to realize she was defending Brett Kavanaugh and that at the end, when when at the end, she said, I support Brett Kavanaugh, I say yes to his nomination. I literally broke down and wept because I knew what was happening 
I knew it went back to, for me, it went back to the way it was such a clear illustration of the way that the system has been jerry rigged in order to protect white men since the very beginning and the, and that they could use white women to do it was so striking and not new <laughs> at all. I mean, it's actually the exact way that it's done. But I think this felt like another notch up because you had a white woman protecting a white man from the allegations of a white woman, which was like, wow. I mean, like a whole nother level. The thing that makes me lament is realizing that this game has been jerry-rigged for so long and there's been such a, a concerted and strategic and intentional effort over the last 30 years to entrench white power. And that really literally was the moment when it was done. Like that was the moment, like that, that moment when she declared her support. And then when they voted the next day on that Saturday, white power in the United States was entrenched for the next two to three generations. Because you have now the majority of the court are conservatives who are committed to white dominance. So I literally wept. I got onto a phone call with, with some colleagues and I wept. It really did feel in some ways, I it felt like, wow, this is this is how my ancestors must have felt. You know, hopeless. And yet we're still here. We're, we're walking. We're on this call and we're talking. But there's a very real lament that's rising in America right now. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you candid conversations from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Greenville University and Freedom Road LLC are excited to welcome you to join us for the Justice Ministry Program. The courses in this program are facilitated by myself, Lisa Sharon Harper, in collaboration with Dr. Ben Wayman at Greenville University as we guide participants through pilgrimages that bring to life today's most pressing matters. If you are a senior level college student or a pastor, a justice minister, a worship leader, a nonprofit leader, a justice advocate, a social worker, or a grad student in theology or the church, these courses are for you. The dream for this program is to help people in the church and in society to work towards justice and a more just world more effectively. But we can't do that until we understand the connections between the policy choices we're making right now and the history that came before. So this program will build up the capacity of faith leaders and communities to build that more just world. For more information about the Justice Ministry Certificate at Greenville University, email us at info at freedomroad.us. I want to ask you, Sunshan, what is Lament? Yeah, you know, the uh, Old Testament has uh, two very broad genres of poetic address to God. 
And you see this in the Psalms, where the Psalms are divided up into a category of praise or hymns of praise. And uh, these hymns of praise are the songs and worship that expresses the response to all the good that God has done. It's Thanksgiving or the good things that are happening. But a significant percentage of the Psalms and a book like Lamentations and even to some extent Ecclesiastes are laments, uh, which are a significant portion of the poetic address to God from the scriptures. And lament is the response to suffering and injustice in the world. If mm. praise is celebrating the good that is happening in our society and in the world and the, um, in one, one's life, lament is the appropriate response to when there is suffering in the world. And I think what we see in lament in the scriptures is an acknowledgement of God even in the midst of suffering, that God is not absent, but that suffering is also very real. We're not glossing over it. We're not pretending that it's not there. We're not sweeping it under the rug. We're acknowledging the reality of suffering in the world because we live in a fallen world, and lament is the absolute appropriate response to that suffering. The problem, of course, is that uh, in many of our contexts right now, uh, we don't lament because we don't understand suffering, or we don't uh, engage the truth of that suffering. And so in the scriptures, we see repeatedly a response to suffering, the appropriate response is lament. And what's the end goal of lament? Well, it's not to just kind of put a happy closure on lament. In fact, in the Psalms, you'll see a number of uh, lament psalms that do not have a happy ending to them. And the same thing with the Book of Lamentations doesn't quite close with a happy ending. Jerusalem is not restored to its former glory. The people of Israel are not restored to the glory of David and Solomon there. Uh, what you have instead are a broken people living in a broken city, people sent into exile, and poverty and injustice still is rampant in their midst. So the act of lament, I do believe, in and of itself, is an appropriate response, meaning the act of lament can be an end. That lament actually is the honesty before God, the truth-telling before God, that in and of itself is, a, uh, is an absolutely appropriate end uh, goal of our spirituality. Of course, there's more to it than that, in that, for example, in the Psalms, even if a particular psalm doesn't end, or a particular lament psalm doesn't end with a happy ending, we do see in later psalms a working out of that lament. And we know that the Book of Lamentations, even though it doesn't end happily, the end of that story is actually the fulfillment in the person of Jesus. So the other aspect of lament is not just that you are agonizing over suffering and pain, but you come to the realization that your hope is not in your own strength, but in the provision of God. And so lament in the Old Testament, for example, finds its resolution in the New Testament in the person of Jesus, in the kingdom of God. But I, I would say it's both and. Uh, lament in and of itself is an end because it calls us to an honesty before God that we didn't have before, and that's a goal. That's an end product. But at the same time, it also calls us to a greater dependence upon God, recognizing that our salvation is not our own uh, doing, but it comes from God. Mm. So can you talk to us about the difference between lament and the dirge? Because I know that you, I was with you once when you talked about that, and I, I had never heard that before. And I want to know, which are we in right now? Like, which is most appropriate right now? Is it the lamentation or is it the dirge? That's a great question. Uh, lament has many subgenres. And if you look at the category of lament, you'll see multiple ways that lament is expressed an individual lament, a corporate lament. There's actually, uh, the Book of Lamentations is a very specific genre called the city lament. 
And then these subgenres also overlap with one another. So the Book of Lamentations is actually written as a city lament, an individual lament, a corporate lament. But one of the key attributes of chapter one, two, and four of Lamentations is that it is a funeral dirge, meaning it is sung at a funeral. And one of the things I point out is that lament is not always a person that's in a hospital. So, of course, we lament when a person is sick in the hospital, needs our prayer, and we go in and we lament with them. But that actually prayer has the expectation that they're going to get better. They will come out of the hospital possibly. They will come out of that hospital bed. They might have a surgery. They might have uh, medicine or even a healing that will actually cause them to emerge from that lament healthier than they are at the moment of that lament. Uh, a funeral dirge is a little bit different, obviously, because we're not at the hospital anymore. We're at a funeral service. And so, uh, you know, I, I teach at a seminary, and I certainly would not tell my students in the future when they are pastors that they should act the same way in a funeral that they would at a hospital visit. In a hospital visit, you have the hope of healing and a uh, person getting better. At a funeral, the person is dead. There's a dead body in the room. So I think the moment that we're in right now is a little bit of both hands. The both end is there are places where we should intercede with lament with the hope that things will get better. But there's also places where a death has occurred and there are dead bodies in, our, in the room right now. And for me, when it comes to the current state of American society, one of the most significant dead bodies is the issue of uh, racial injustice. How have the dead bodies been littered throughout our American history? that we have to deal with, not as a lament, as in something's going to get better, but as a funeral dirge where we've got to deal with the dead bodies. We've got to face the reality of the dead bodies. The dead bodies of Africans who were killed during the Middle Passage, the dead bodies of slaves who were killed on the plantation, the dead bodies of Native Americans who were killed to take their land away, the dead bodies of people who were part of immigration processes but were denied and then death came upon them. Uh, there are so many dead bodies in our history that we have to see lament is sometimes a hopefulness to say, if we tell the truth to God, God will bring healing. But sometimes it's a funeral where we've got to acknowledge that there is death here, that there are dead bodies, and we've got to deal with the dead bodies. Do you think there's any dead bodies that have surfaced in the last six months? There are, there are bodies that I thought were dead <laughs> uh, that have surfaced in the last couple of years. I had hoped that white nationalism and kind of the Nazi movement, I had hoped that that was dead. You know, we fought a world war decades ago to combat the evil of Nazi Germany. And here we are, you know, <laughs> uh, more than half a century later, fighting those same battles and uh, trying to uh, combat an ideology. What I think is underneath that uh, ideology is the ideology of white supremacy that elevates whites over and against other people groups uh, and other races and other cultures. So I had hoped that that was dead. It's not. So in that sense, it's also kind of a both-hand equation. We have to acknowledge the deaths that have occurred because of white nationalism, white supremacy. But we also have to acknowledge, wow, this is an ongoing situation. And part of the problem right now in American society is the failure to see the history of race as a funeral, as a place where dead bodies have been, have been left strewn all over our history. And so some of this denial about the horrible institution of slavery, some of the denial around some of our horror racial history is the inability to see this as a funeral, 
but to see things only in terms of, hey, we're over it now. We're in the post-racial era. era. We've passed all the struggles of our society, uh, when clearly that is not true. So we have to see things on both levels. Racism, uh, white supremacy, has less, left a, a trail of dead bodies, but the dead bodies are still piling up. Our, our story is still in, in progress, where the, the very painful narratives are still being played out. That is so helpful. I mean, actually, like literally, I was thinking about this earlier, that that's part of the reason why I've been le- like moved to weeping is that it feels to me yeah. like we are literally in the middle of a funeral. I said to someone after the Brett Kavanaugh decision and, and the yes um, to yeah. his confirmation, I said to someone the appropriate response is literally for us to stage a funeral because America has yeah. died. Like it literally feels like America has died now. Why? Yeah. Because yeah. every single arm of our government is now owned by one single ideology, the ideology of conservatism. And not only just conservatism, because I don't think Edmund Burke would actually recommend this or recognize this. It is actually far-right white nationalism that has taken over our nation. And why do I say that about Brett Kavanaugh? I say it because of the emails that he sent and and the briefs that he's written and, and the judgments that he's actually had. It's not because of Christine Blasey Ford, though that is also evidence. But I'm talking about the way that he said that that Native Americans or Native Hawaiians should not be given special privileges, even though those privileges come from a treaty that America signed. He's saying America should break its treaty, has no has no obligation to uphold its treaty to Native people. Um, he has said that affirmative action is a, is a racial uh, set aside. Like this is this is the person that we just nominated to take up the the ninth seat of the court and is now actually going to tip the balance in favor of ledge of of rulings that that rule in that way so talk about piling up the dead bodies black bodies brown bodies mexican bodies um uh, muslim bodies jewish bodies women's bodies are actually just give it 40 years with that court they're going to be piled up in mass graves that's that's how i feel right now and i feel like we literally said goodbye to america with that vote and it's not just it's not just because of the vote it's because of what that vote will set us up to create over the next 40 years and the fact that the conservative the republican senate that voted him in knows that they are not ignorant of that fact. It's what they wanted. It's literally a bargain they made. And I can say that because I've heard Republicans who are strategists say that. They've actually said this is the bargain that they made. And the church is supporting it. The church continues to support it. So yes, tears are weeping down my face. And I feel like we really need to see that we are in a funeral moment right now. And I think for two things, both America and the church. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. 
In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. So, May, in Forgive Us, you did the historical work on the sins of the church against Native Americans, Jewish people, and Muslim people. Do you see any patterns in the ways that we sinned against these populations in the past and the ways we're sinning against them today? Hmm. Well, I think one of the common threads that we see is the treatment of those who are made to be um, seen and viewed and experienced as the other, where the lack of humanity is fully acknowledged in indigenous people, in Jewish people, in um, people who practice, you know, Islam as their faith. And we see that consistently. Um, One of the things my dissertation advisor always said when I did my PhD at the University of California, and he's one of the foremost scholars on Black American history, he said, every group that has been an other, every other has another other. That every group that has been oppressed, if their oppression is not somehow healed or transformed, they become oppressors, which I thought was a really interesting idea. But I mean, we see, you know, the treatment of the indigenous communities, this group that I was just with last night in Oklahoma City, they were talking about the indigenous Palestinians currently and their displacement and how they related and felt like so many of the issues are the same issues. And here we are hundreds of years later, and yet we're seeing similar types of oppression being manifested. So I think there's a lot of common themes between those different groups. Wow. And so when you look at the news headlines today, like when you think about what's happening in the news, the voting rights being taken away from our voter suppression being happening in North, in North Dakota, um, do you see that as a manifestation of the ways that people have been dehumanized? Well, I think whenever you have power that is um, isolated or monopolized, power, money, access to resources that are being limited you know, from other people, I think that's one of the places where we see some of the gravest injustices, right? And it's a little bit of Jesus's verses where, you know, I don't think money in and of itself is evil, but the scriptures that talk about love of money, right? And it's the same thing with power. Like power is not necessarily in and of itself an evil thing, but when you have power monopolized, which we are seeing certainly, I mean, we could talk about that quite extensively around the world, but when we see power monopolized, then it's being used for evil purposes to oppress people who don't have power and have limited access to resources. How about you, Troy? I mean, I think that you were one of the historians that worked on the Forgive Us book. And when you look around at the state of the world and the church's complicity in it, do you find, I mean, do we find any precedent for the history, I mean, in history for the way that churches are responding today, right now? Well, unfortunately, yes. The ability of human beings to stray from our calling to love one another and to be followers of Jesus is all over global and church history and certainly is the only way to explain 
slavery, uh, the oppression of women, the vilification of the LGBTQ community, the vilification of immigrants. It is rampant in our history. I think any hope that I had that we were entering a new era, particularly as the evangelical church has evaporated, particularly for white evangelicals over the past couple of years. Not that I'm without hope in general, but right now, the worst parts of American church and Christian history are being accented in ways that are deeply disturbing. I think I may have said to you on a call recently, Lisa, that without the support and endorsement and consistent uh, defense of the president, Donald Trump, by white evangelicals, he would not be our president. He would not have been elected. And after he was elected, if white evangelicals said no more, we're not going to sit in the seat of scoffers any longer. We're going to actually be people who follow the way and the truth and the life. This presidency would be over in all of the pain and horror that it is unleashing uh, on a daily basis. So, May, I know that you're kind of walking through the airport right now. I want to thank you for staying with us. When you think back to actual moments in history, do you see a moment in history that is similar to the one right now where the church responded in, in support of politics that, that denigrated the image of God, like in the United States? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think there's a few points in history. The one that I think is the most significant that I would point to is the Christian justification of using the mandates in Genesis of ruling over nature and creation as being a justification for oppression. And so we saw it in Manifest Destiny. We saw it in the the displacement of the Native Americans and the indigenous community in terms of prayer towns, where the churches used the gospel as a justification for the annihilation of the Native American community. I mean, to confiscate their land and their resources. So, so I see those as being, you know, I mean, that was a critical point in history where Christian principles um, were distorted in such a horrible way, in a way to oppress and to control. I see the connection to what you're talking about, to the Standing Rock, you know, fight and the Christian support for a president that said, well, we just need the oil, which is ironic because that oil actually is not going to go to Americans. It's just going through America. Third examples, we see it fundamentally in the unilateral support of the state of Israel over another people group. I mean, our whole approach is support the Jewish people of Israel, but support the Palestinians as well. Don't use our Christian faith as a justification to elevate one people group over another. I mean, that that's that's a distortion of our faith and a distortion of the gospel. And also, Troy, I mean, you just mentioned this as well in terms of, you know, I'm thinking about the columnist Jamal Khashoggi, who was assassinated by Saudi Arabia. Now, it's pretty much all but proven that they had to do with it. It was specifically the crown prince that was most likely behind it. And we have our own president justifying that and the evangelical church continuing its support of that president. So what is, you know, can, can you kind of paint for us the line of sin there? Like, it's not like we can't say we're separate from this because we are now supporting a man who's, who's supporting that. So that means we're supporting that. So is that how it works? Yeah, it's disturbing. And 
especially, and I know Pat Robertson is not the person who speaks for Christianity today, but what he said was that one man's life uh, is not that big a deal if it's multi-hundred million dollar, hundred billion dollar deal or whatever it was. Basically, it's about trade of weapons. So this militarization, this, it, it is unbelievable. And he basically said what, in more explicit terms, what the president had said, which is we have an arms deal with Saudi Arabia. And we're not going to mess that up because they're violating the human rights and they're actually murdering a journalist who was a resident of the United States of America. The arms deal is too important. We want to be part of the militarization of the world as a solution to the world's problems and our financial gain from that, which is deeply rooted in American history. This idea that profit over people, that the commodification of people, Dr. Stephen Ray, who's in Chicago, talks about that basically America has consistently made the decision to profit off the pain and misery and suffering of dark bodies. And this is yet another example of that. Wow. And so, and the church, what's the connection between America's choice to do that and the church? Well, the church by and large, and I'll speak particularly of the white evangelical church, has for generations abdicated any public theology, any sense that our engagement in politics in the world should be formed by Scripture and by what it means to follow Jesus Christ. So we either have a lunatic, radical Christian fringe overtly supporting this, or by and large, we have a leadership of white evangelicalism that is stuck and frozen and paralyzed by this moment. And I think that's the vast, vast majority, is there is no formation, no public theology, no ability to be prophetic. It has been taken out of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in white evangelicalism, and we are paying that price. And it's not just us, but people all around the globe, and particularly women, people of color, immigrants, the LGBTQ community, Muslims, on and on and on, are paying the price for the lack of a prophetic voice in white evangelicalism today. So Troy and May, and May is just about to get on the flight, so I'm going to go to you first. She's literally in line. <laughs> I love you, May. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Um, what? How have you seen churches repent? You know, what has confession and repentance looked like as you have witnessed it, or have you witnessed it yet? You know, I mean, honestly, and I don't mean for this to be an indictment. And um, I, I mean, I want to be humble in my own confession right now. But I've seen some white evangelical communities try to have these conversations and they call them these lament services, right? Or they call them services for racial justice or, but they just feel like platitudes. I mean, they just feel like it doesn't even touch the surface. Like I want them to read these books about white fragility and seeking to understand, you know, what it means to be in authentic relationships with communities of color. Because I feel like what we do is, you know, we hear these horrible stories of police brutality. And then we we cry about, you know, a death and then we just move on and like fix lasagna for dinner. 
(laughs) Which I would say, no, that's not, that's an inadequate form of lament, right? That we're not doing what we're called to do as the body of Christ, which is to address systemic injustice, not just these personal, you know, emotions, that kind of thing. So I think there's so much work for us to do. I'm so grateful to be in community with you and Troy and Suntan and Evangelicals for Justice and these movements where I would say that's lament when we're doing the wrestling, like when we're on the ground and sobbing and wrestling and, and that that's what lament looks like. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. Um, but it's so, so necessary. Wow. Wow. Amen. And so tr- are you going to have to leave or are you still able to stick with us for a little bit? For a little- I'm, I'm in boarding group nine of nine on this flight. So I'm going <laughs> to. <laughs> Thank you so much. God bless you. Thanks for being on the line, May. Bye. Bye bye. So, Troy, have you seen churches repent? What does confession and repentance look like for you when you have actually witnessed it? Yeah, there are a couple places that I've seen. And by the way, I think um, recently I was part of a largely African-American church, and I just feel like New Prospect Baptist Church in Cincinnati, led by uh, Reverend David Lynch III, embodies so much of this. And it's not a new shape for that church to lament and to embody justice in the world and to be prophetic. So it's, I think it's important to always lift that up. But People's Church in Cincinnati, we wrote a little bit about them in the book, uh, congregation led by a Reverend or Pastor Chris Beard. It's an Assembly of the God congregation that has gone from almost all white to majority people of color. And it's not an easy path for them, but they continue to wrestle with what does it mean to be a multi-ethnic, multi-racial kingdom of God, a church that looks like heaven. And not contain that in me and my friend who's different than me, but think about the implications in Cincinnati and in the state and in the nation. Uh, so that's exciting. The other place that's been really interesting is the work that we've been doing at Crossroads Church in Cincinnati, which is the fastest growing church in America. They, I was talking with one of their pastors. They're averaging over 50,000 on some Sundays now in worship. But we started something with Pastor Chuck Mingo, who's an African-American pastor from Philadelphia, one of the two main teaching pastors at Crossroads, and felt a conviction following Ferguson and through a lot of conversations with the Amos Project, which I was leading at the time, to lead an effort around racial reconciliation. And he invited me to be on the team, and I was as cynical as you can imagine. A church that's 90% white is going to do racial reconciliation. Promise Keepers 2.0. Me and my friend of color. That's what I was expecting. But that's not what it's been. Uh, there has been a real commitment to deal with the different aspects of racism, to talk about white supremacy, to talk about history. In fact, I do in Undivided, which is what it's called, the 35-minute history of race in Cincinnati, and now we've done one nationally, that obviously it's it's just uh, scratching the surface, but it's real history. We do work on empathy and the difference between empathy and sympathy, feeling with versus feeling sorry for, and how radically different that is. And then we do a week on reality where we're looking at opportunities and systemic oppression and the ways race plays out in America. And it is launched, we've had over 4,000 people now go through it. It's launched justice teams that are doing work on universal preschool, doing work on uh, significant work on criminal justice reform. 
it's changing the DNA of the congregation. It's not changed it entirely, but there's at least this stream of folks saying we can, by the way, there's a lot about confession and lament as part of that. And it's multiracial groups going on a journey together, following Jesus being the core and saying that Jesus has called us to live undivided. What does that really look like? And so that's probably the thing that has been most exciting that I've been a part of over the last few years is this little thing called Undivided. And uh, we're trying to figure out how to even move it to a more national platform in the coming year. Wow, that's awesome. That is awesome. Go on with your bad self. I think some of the most, um, the most prophetic, um, edge kind of churches that I've, I've experienced have been actually church startups. They've been church plants that have like planted and started the church with roots that are just. And so as a result, they actually end up growing up into just flowers. But I've also seen it, the church at large in, in the world do some extraordinary transformational work through the practice the, of pilgrimage. So from everything from my, my pilgrimage that I was a part of to South Africa and spending five days on Robin Island doing some deep work of wrestling over what, what does, what does forgiveness mean? What's the relationship between forgiveness and justice? And then also the pilgrimages that we're doing right now through Greenville University and the Justice Ministry course and the Ruby Woo pilgrimage. Pilgrimage offers the opportunity to immerse oneself in the stories of the other and therefore be transformed by them, right? So so I think that that's also, I want to offer that as a way. I want to ask you this one last question. What does the church need to repent of right now? Well, I think lament is a unique spiritual function and a a worship function of the church. Mm-hmm. And so it, I, I have difficulty kind of asking the country to lament because the country doesn't have that spiritual capacity. Wow. Um, and, and, it, and it can't. It doesn't, it doesn't understand God. It's not in subservience to God. It's not in... Uh, it's not in worship of God. As much as I would like to see that, it's just not true. It's not, you know, this is not a Christian nation. This is not a nation that bows before God. So, you know, to ask a country to lament over brokenness in the world, I, I just don't have that expectation. However, my my call and my my conviction is that the absence of lament in the church is very troubling. And so the call is for the church to lament. Now, there's a couple of factors here. One is that lament is not passive. Lament is not just kind of, okay, we've done our part, now we move on type of thing. Lament actually should move us to action. Uh, lament should say, hey, something is not right with the world. We've acknowledged before God, and just like in the book of Habakkuk, uh, you see when we lament before God, sometimes God responds and said, where were you? Uh, what are you doing? And uh, it's in the book of Habakkuk, it's in the book of Job. Uh, these are the responses that we oftentimes get in lament. So God is not always silent when it comes to lament. He listens and he responds. Uh, and I think the, the, the challenge for the church right now is that we are so caught up in this triumphalism exception, and that exceptionalism is very much kind of a white supremacy, very much a white nationalism. And the belief that white supremacy and white nationalism is going to triumph at the end of all this, and therefore there is no need to lament when actually the triumph of white nationalism and white supremacy and the triumph of something like a, a Kavanaugh nomination, the triumph of a Donald Trump in the recent election, those are all indicative of a church that has lost its prophetic voice. 
of a church that has lost the ability to speak to power with the Word of God, uh, but instead just watches as the powers in our in our society, the powers and principalities of our society, do what they want, and the church is not able to speak to them. That's one of the first things I think we need to lament, that the church has been silent, not just silent, but complicit, not just complicit, but actually the main power broker in the affirmation of dysfunctional power. That's a very lamentable experience and moment right now. And so what we need to repent of is our complicity on multiple yeah, levels. Yeah, on multiple levels. Uh, there's a, I mean, there's a passivity that I think is also worth repenting, that we've kind of allowed the church to be represented in a way in our society that is completely inappropriate and inaccurate. And also uh, the church, in terms of uh, it's the public voice, has seemed to side with those in power and affirmed this very dysfunctional agenda of white nationalism. And that is something that, uh, you know, one of the things I think that the church is responsible for is how uh, God is portrayed in our world and how Christians represent Christ in the world. I come back to this. As we were talking, I thought of Psalm 1, and I mentioned it earlier, that we have sat in the seat of scoffers. That's the position the church is in. I mentioned that we have joined with the Roman soldiers in mocking Jesus. When we support a mocking president, we are mocking Jesus. When we support a president who mocks the most vulnerable, we are mocking Jesus. I guess that's where I would probably put it, that we have that there has been a decision to throw our lot in for some gain in some policy that has, I I don't know, the ends justify the means isn't even scratching the surface of how deeply problematic this stance is. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I would say uh, my heart is going right now when it comes to lament and a plea. I honestly feel like the evangelical church or at least the part that that I am still connected with, I just want to shout, forgive us uh, to women, to people of color, to immigrants, to Muslims, to the African-American community, to the Native American community, to the world for what has been wrought. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road, LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. And we invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first day of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.